Well, why do we do infant dedication? Here's the thing. It's not some magic spell we're putting on kids. And we're not hoping real hard that God will bless them in some way. What we're saying is we're devoting this child to the Lord. And, and we're asking for God's blessing as he lives his life in accordance with Christ. We're also asking the parents that they're going to, they are up here saying in front of all of you, the fellowship, that they will raise this child in accordance with Christ. That means they're going to model godliness in their home. They're going to model godliness to little Matthew and teach him in the way in which he should go. So um, infant dedication is something that we saw in the, in the scriptures. We, we know that the Lord asked for the firstborn always to be devoted. And then, of course, Hannah devoted Samuel. <laughs> and, uh, and then, of course, Jesus was dedicated in the temple. And so we want to pray over Matthew and ask God's blessing. Um, but we also know that the blessing comes in obedience to Christ. So, so we encourage you, church family, to hold these two accountable. And that means that as parents, you're going to say, hey, didn't you stand up in front of church and commit your child to the Lord? Hold on, I get a little more time. I get a little more time, just a little bit. Okay, I'll, you can look at my mic now. Okay. All right, and, and so you can hold them accountable too to, you know, just saying, hey, you, you committed to raise this child in the way of the Lord, so stay on it and encourage them in that way. All right, well, let's pray over Matthew. Matthew, look at me real fast. Matthew over here, I, I wasted my, my three minutes, didn't I? I did, I wasted it. Matthew, Matthew Shepherd Goodwin, gift of the Lord. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray your blessing be upon this young one. Lord, we thank you so much for him, and he is truly a gift from the Lord. I pray, dear God, that he would be a gift for people. Lord, that uh, you would raise him up in your ways. Lord, he would be a light. And God, we just thank you for his sweet spirit that you've given him. And we just pray your blessing be upon this child all of his days. Let him walk in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're excited to see Matthew grow up in the Lord. And um, wonderful little name there, Matthew Shepherd. So, oh, he's going off to Sunday school. He, by the way, Matthew's always good in here because he, he lets me know when I'm going too long. So when Matthew's not here, it's like, Oh, Dave, come on, where's Matthew? We need him. <laughs> so. All right, we are continuing on in Revelation tonight. And I know normally you might start getting Christmas messages. We will have a Christmas message next Sunday night. We'll have Christmas in the book of Revelation. Uh, and so we'll, we'll see what that's like. But until then, we've got this uh, awesome chapter in Revelation chapter 11 to continue on with. So let's pray and just ask God's blessing as we read his word. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you, dear God, that you've revealed yourself to us through your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, you've revealed what the end holds. And we thank you, God, that we who know you and trust in you as our Savior are safe. Lord, you hold us safe and keep us near. Lord, help us to be faithful with the words that we read tonight and hear. Help us to apply them so that we can do your will, dear God. We thank you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Christmas time is such a special time. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting this year. I've been uh, working with a lot of people. And um, for, for the, some of the people I've been working with this year, it's not a special time as exciting and fun. But it's actually a time of sorrow and loneliness. And I'm so sad to hear that because really 
Christ didn't come that we would be alone, but really that we would be, have assurance of salvation, be with him. But unfortunately, this world and some of the tragedies that we go through in life and some of the hardships, they stick with us and they kind of hold on to us. And sometimes we're, we end up psychologically abused by the world. And as we get into tonight's passage, one of the things that we're going to be talking about is being a witness. Now, really, witness is not something that you do. It's something that you are in Christ Jesus. Evangelism is something you do. Witness is something you are. Just by being born in Jesus Christ, born anew, you have become a witness to the new life in Christ. In fact, Jesus told his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Judea, or Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That this was just something that was going to happen, not something you would choose to happen. See, if we're in Christ Jesus, as we live out our lives, we're automatically a witness. And of course, it goes a step further. When we're in Christ Jesus, we also want to be obedient to all that he commands us. And that's where evangelism comes in. That's where we start sharing our faith verbally and vocally with other people so that they too would know that Jesus Christ has come, that he's died for them and provided a way for salvation for them. But sadly, sometimes this life makes us victims. Or let me say this, we allow ourselves to be victims to the culture. Maybe, maybe we're depressed, maybe we're upset, maybe, maybe we just are afraid to speak to people, so we're afraid of what they might think of us, and then we don't do what we're supposed to do. We don't act as obedient children, we just continue on in our own way. I uh, was driving this week, this week I actually, for fun, I decided um, I would drive for Uber for a couple days, and so, what I well, not even a couple days, uh, I think I spent total eight hours driving after I got off work at night, um, and so what I did was, uh, one of the guys in the church was driving for Uber, so I said, well, invite me, because you get a bonus if somebody picks up and drives, so he got a bonus of like 300 bucks, because I drove 20 trips or whatever, and I wasn't sure really what to expect, I kind of thought that this is probably going to be lame, but I'll, ju I'll just do it, and he'll get a bonus, and I'll get a bonus, and we'll see how it goes. And uh, it was actually pretty awesome. This week was, like, so cool because people would get into my truck, and I'd say, where do you want to go? And I'd get the address. Okay, here we go. And they say, so do you drive for Uber full-time? And first of all, I pull up in an F-150, and they're like, this is not an Uber truck. You know, <laughs> this, is, this is not a Prius. <laughs> And uh, I said, no, I don't drive for Uber full time. I'm just doing this for fun. And they're like, what? And, and they're like, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. You're a pastor? What, what kind of a pastor are you? Well, I'm an evangelical Christian pastor. And, and that would launch into conversation. And I would have some of the best witnessing opportunities or evangelism opportunities I've had all week. I mean, it was like going to do street evangelism. But them stepping into my truck and then asking me about it and their captive audience for the 30 minutes there in my truck while I drive them. And um, on uh, Friday afternoon, I ended up in San Clemente through a turn of drop-offs and pickups. I ended up in San Clemente. I was like, Lord, please give me a ride back so it's actually worth me driving back. And uh, so I was kind of praying, going, oh, I don't want to just jump in traffic and sit in traffic with no ride in the car. But all of a sudden I get a ping. 
So I go, okay, cool. I got somebody in San Clemente. So I go pick them up, and they want to go to Costa Mesa. I'm like, thank you, Lord. <laughs> so awesome. So um, I go pick her up, and uh, she needs to go to Costa Mesa at a Christmas party, and we start talking. We have this. We just started having a great conversation on the way down, and we're talking about the military, women in the military, our culture, same-sex marriage, and she's bringing up all these topics, and I'm just talking to her and giving her what my the Christian worldview is. And as we continue talking, we're on the 73 toll road finally, and she says, well, you know, I think I'm just going to go to hell. And I'm okay with that, though. It's, it'll be cool. I'm like, really? You want to go to hell? Why do you want to go to hell? She's like, well, I, I just figured that, you know, I'll just live my life and go to hell. And it's like, well, do you realize that everything you love, everything that you cherish in life, like, for instance, love, goodness, mercy, all those values that you say are worth living for come from God. God is love. God is mercy. God is good. And so if we want to know goodness, love, mercy, we've got to go to the source, which is God. And hell is absence of the source of God. Hell is loneliness for eternity. It's absent of love. It's absent of goodness. It's absent of mercy. And I'm not even going to get into the other stuff the Bible says about hell. Do you really want that? And besides, God being good has provided a way that we don't have to go to hell through Jesus Christ, that we can know him, that he died for our sins, so we can know him. In fact, the Bible tells us that it's not the threat of hell that makes us turn and repent, but it's rather his loving kindness. The Bible says that God desires that all men should be saved and none should perish. She said, I think I need to start going to church. I was like, yeah, that's awesome. I gave her my card and said, call me, and maybe I'll help you try to get plugged in. And I want to actually get a little tracked uh, if I do Uber anymore over New Year's. Um, I, I definitely told some college students they should rethink their life choices this week. And, and by the way, I'm getting five stars while telling people truth. It's pretty awesome. So, <laughs> so but here's the thing. We should look for these opportunities to evangelize. And tonight as we get into chapter 11, we're going to see these two very incredible witnesses. So let's, let's go ahead and start in uh, verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and, and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, let me just pause there and let's start talking about this chapter. Now, many want to take this chapter and, and spiritualize it or allegorize it for the church. Um, they want to say that the temple represents the church. But with Revelation chapter 11, you will get into a whole mess if you try to spiritualize it. If you say that it just means what it says that there's a temple, that there's two witnesses, that it's three and a half years, these terms, it's much easier to understand this chapter. But if you start allegorizing it and spiritualizing it, you will get all over the place and have to do spiritual gymnastics throughout this chapter. So what we see first is a temple. John is given a measuring rod or staff. And, and of course, in, in John's day, they couldn't pull out their Stanley tape measure and go, okay, I got my 25-foot tape measure here. Let's get measure this out and measure that out. He, they didn't do that. In fact, 
you would have a, a cubit, which was from your finger to your elbow, or a span, which was from your pinky to your thumb, and that was kind of the measuring standard. So they would have a rod that would be, um, uh, you know, cubits in length, six cubits in length, so it would be, you know, six to eight feet, and or, or, you know, depending on how long they wanted to make this rod, and they would go about measuring things with this rod, and so you would know, like, I need this at nine feet. Well, I got the right cubit for that. Here we go, a rod, and boom, nine feet. Oh, this is actually three rods, so it's, you know, 27 feet. So <clears throat> anyway, they th- that's what John was given this rod to go measure. Now, why measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship? Uh, it's interesting. When I first got into uh, putting an offer on a house and then the bank accepted that offer because it was a short sale, um, one of the first things I did was set up a home inspection. And in the home inspection, they came and they measured out everything. And part of the home inspection was saying that this house really is what it claims to be. That it's really X amount of square feet, that the property is X amount of square feet. And, and it's showing that this house really is that. And, and of course, when I, when I get that house, once I own the house, well, technically I own it, but really the bank owns it. But as, as I get that house, I'm like, okay, this is my, f- wait a minute, my neighbor's got their fence six inches on my land. No, of course, that didn't happen with me, but that's how you start thinking. You start measuring out and going, this is my property. That's one of the first things you do. It's a sign of ownership. And here we see God measuring out this temple and those who worship in it. Have you ever thought about God measures our worship and how we worship? I was talking to a friend, and he was telling me how he just doesn't like it when a church can't put on a good production value worship, the band and all that sort of stuff. And I was like, well, it's kind of consumer-minded, isn't it? And uh, he's like, well, you know, with this day and age, people should be able to put on a good show. Otherwise, it, it, you know, they just should, shouldn't do it. And, it. and it's really funny because I told Nick when we first were thinking about the Sunday night service, I wanted the exact opposite. I told Nick specifically, Nick, I don't want a show. I want you to worship the Lord. And I want you to invite us to worship with you. That was, the, that was the original intent and still is to this day. We're not going to put on a show. We're not going to try to compete with the church down the street. We, we don't have lasers and fog machines and all the cool strobes and stuff. We just don't, nor do we want that. We just want to have worshipful music. Music that says, hey, God, you are awesome and great and we're here because of you. So I... Uh, <clears throat> When we think about worship, of course, there's not only our deeds and our actions, but when we actually come to worship, God measures our worship. Are you sitting there kind of critiquing things? Uh, I don't think Katie really hit that note right, or Nick didn't hit that note right, or, you know, the drums, you know, the drummer's okay, but, you know, uh, what, what about saying, God, you're awesome, keeping the focus on Him, not the focus on how the worship meets your sensibilities, you know? It really should be about Him. Now, I understand culturally, generationally, there are issues that we have to consider and there are styles that minister to other people better than others. But if you find yourself in a worship service that you generationally don't identify with, guess what you're to do? Worship the Lord. If you, if you find yourself in a service where, for you younger people, it's all hymns with an organ, Guess what you're to do? Worship the Lord. That's what you're to do. 
because it's always about Him. You can thank God that there's other forms of worship and styles and all that sort of, that's just praise. That's just the candy, right? But we're supposed to worship the Lord all the time. God measures our worship. And here we see John measuring the temple of God and those who worship. Now notice what he says in verse 2. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Daniel chapter 9, which we've been referencing a lot as we've been going through Revelation, those 70 weeks, talk about there's a command from the, the decree to rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of Messiah, it'll be, how many, anybody remember how many weeks it'll be? 69 weeks, okay? You'll have, the, you'll have this many weeks until Messiah is cut off. And then, then the 70th week is what we also call the, the tribulation period, in the latter half the great tribulation. But the 70th week of Daniel, we read about the ruler of the people who comes and commits the abomination that causes desolation. Back in Daniel, we read about this. And, and, and what, he, what does he do? Well, he goes into the temple and he causes an abomination. He declares himself God. He declares himself a, a false idol to be worshipped within the temple of God. So we know from Daniel that the temple is going to be rebuilt. Now, today, if you were to go to the Temple Mount, um, let me put up this slide real fast. Okay, here's a little picture of the Temple Mount with some things you'll, you'll need to know. So right there in the center, you have the Dome of the Rock. And, of course, this is a, a Muslim holy site. In fact, Orthodox Jews to this day will not go on the Temple Mount. The reason they will not go on the Temple Mount is they don't know where the Holy of Holies was. And they don't want to accidentally step into the area where the Holy of Holies was, so they don't go on it. They stay off completely. That's Orthodox Jews. Not, not all Jews feel that way. But on the Temple Mount, now you have the Dome of the Rock, which is where the Muslims worship. And then you have the Al-Aqsa Mosque right here, another mosque. The question is, in this huge foundational spot, where was the temple? They don't really know for sure. There's theories that the temple was actually on this northern portion where you can't really see from this, this map that where all these trees are. And then there's some theories that the temple was actually here by the western welling wall, which is right here. So there would have been the temple there. So there, there's different theories. And then, of course, some have the Holy of Holies right where the Dome of the Rock is located. So if you remember, the temple had the Holy of Holies or the most holy place, which was where they would only go into one time a year. The high priest would bring in the offering one time a year in the Holy of Holies. Oh, thanks. There, that's better. Then you would have the most the holy place, which the priest would minister. You had the, the, the altar of incense and so on inside there. Then you would come out and you would have the inner court. And that's where they would do offerings and things like that. And there was a sign at the entrance to the inner court from the outer court that said, do not come in if you're a Gentile, basically, or you'll die. So basically, you, you'll be dead if you desecrate our temple as a Gentile and come inside. So from the inner court, you went to the outer court, which is also called the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles were allowed, and Gentile again is just a non-Jew. They were allowed to come up to the outer court. So now we have this temple mount. So the Bible is telling us here in Revelation that as John measures out this new temple, it's missing 
the outer court or the court of the Gentiles. If you do the measurements, you can actually fit the new temple right in here minus the court of the Gentiles. So you can fit both the Dome of the Rock and the new temple onto the Temple Mount. You can turn back on the lights. So the, God is saying, hey, you're going to measure out for the temple, but understand this, you're not going to measure out the outer court. Listen to what it's been given. Leave that out for it has been given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. This, this outer court has been given over. Now, it's almost like God knows what he's doing. Have you noticed that? As we've been looking through Revelation, what we've seen is nothing happens until God decrees it. Nothing starts up. No calamity happens by accident. Every single thing is sovereignly controlled by God. And although it may have seemed that the Muslims had a great victory by establishing the Dome of the Rock there, what we see is, no, they're just playing into God's prophetic plan. They're just doing exactly what God planned would happen from the beginning. And so we, we see that, that they've been given that to the, leave that out for the nations. And you might say, well, that doesn't say Muslims. Well, the word nations just means ethnos, and it's, it's Gentiles. And so from a Jewish perspective, Muslims are Gentiles, okay. And, of course, Muslims haven't even been come on the scene yet. That, that comes much later. Now, what have they been given? Well, they've been given the right to trample the holy city for 42 months. So it actually says that they've got control for this three-and-a-half-year period. They've got control of the holy city. And then it says that, um, but I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, I'm saying three-and-a-half months. Um, you've got to remember 30 or three-and-a-half years. 30-day months is what we're talking about. We're not talking about... Um, our, our Roman calendar that we use today. We're talking about a month with 30 days. Okay, listen to what it says about these, these witnesses. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. Let me pause there for a minute. So these two witnesses are called two olive trees and two lampstands. Now this is very different from... This, this is much more like the Old Testament. And remember, we've talked about how the book of Revelation, the seven-year tribulation, we're, we're actually moving more. The church is gone. The church has been taken out. And, and we, we're dealing more specifically with the Jews. And these two witnesses are referred to as olive trees and lampstands. Now, you and I don't make a big deal about olive trees, and we don't make a big deal about lampstands. But to put it in modern-day terms, it's electricity and a light bulb. Okay, that's what it is. The olive trees is where we get olive oil from. The olive oil fills, fills the lampstand. The lampstand burns brightly because it's got olive oil. In fact, the Feast of Lights or the Feast of Hanukkah is all about God's provision and making this olive oil last for this long period of time until they could actually get more oil. That's what the whole thing is about. And so these witnesses are lights Lights for God. Isn't it interesting? That's what God has talked about us as. We're, we're supposed to be shining brightly as light. In fact, Philippians, Paul tells us, shine like stars in the universe. Not, not as a firework. We don't want to be fireworks. Because fireworks are cool. And, I mean, and I love fireworks. You guys all know. And Nick, Nick is right there with me. You guys have all been to, four, some of you have been to my 4th of July. And 
Nick and I usually get in trouble. And uh, <laughs> we've, we've got a like mindset when it comes to blowing things up. And, but, but although fireworks are cool and you hear a boom, the problem is it, get, it goes over really quick. It goes up, blows up, you're like, oh, cool, but it's gone. How cool would a firework be if it actually just went up, boom, you're like, oh, look at it, it's still going. It's still going. In fact, when you buy fireworks, you're kind of looking at like, well, how long does this one last and what does it do? You know, you want to get your money's value out of this thing because if it just blows up really quick, it's like, ah, oh, that wasn't worth it. But Paul tells us shine like stars in the universe. Stars are constant, bright. They, they guide. That's the Christian life. The Bible tells us no one sets a light under a, under a bowl, a lamp under a bowl, but no, they, they put that light up on the hill and they let it shine brightly. It's a beacon. That's what you and I are to be in this world for Christ. Beacons of light. Are, are you living that way? And I think we should challenge ourselves. Am I living as a beacon of light? Or am I just kind of a dim bulb hiding under a bowl? And I want to really encourage you to be bright. These witnesses are, are um, lampstands and olive, olive trees before the Lord. And notice if anyone harms them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Fire pours from <laughs> This is going to be a sight to see. I'll tell you that right now. Uh, let's get a little more insight into these witnesses. Fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. Verse 6, they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. I'm going to stop there for a minute. Let's talk about these prophets. Now, there's lots of theories. The Bible doesn't, John doesn't disclose who these prophets are. We know that there's two witnesses acting as prophets in the city of Jerusalem. And they've got some special powers. Powers to, if anybody would come at them, power to basically devour them with fire. They've got power to shut the sky that no rain will fall during this time of prophesying. And they have power over waters to turn them into blood. Now there's been lots of speculation about these two prophets. Some say Moses and Elijah, they'll come back. And um, when we look at Elijah's prophecy, this, this is interesting because uh, when you think of the Bible in the Old Testament, Moses always represents the law. He he's, he's represents the word being given through the law at Mount Sinai, and he's the figurehead for the law. Elijah is always the figurehead for the prophets. And if you remember on that Mount of Transfiguration, who appeared with Jesus as he was transfigured? Moses and Elijah. And, of course, we recognize that those two were, were both the law and the prophets were leading to Christ. They were both pointing to Christ the whole time. Christ is the fulfillment of these things. But so there is speculation that this is actually Elijah come back. And if you remember, Elijah was raptured. Pre, uh, he, he didn't actually die. He was taken away up to the heaven by, in that fiery chariot we read about in the Old Testament. But Elijah had a kind of a special ministry. 2 Kings chapter 1 tells about Elijah, Ahaziah, as, <laughs> I 
can't believe I'm having trouble with this word now. Uh, Ahaziah, I might be saying this wrong because I, I might have to go back and read Second Kings. But he, he fell through his lattice and was hurt and dying. And, and he sent men to go ask Belzebub of Ekron, the, an idol, whether he would live or not. And Elijah gets word from the Lord to go and stop them. And so Elijah comes and he sits in their way and he says, and they say, who are you? You're kind of dressed funny, you wore camel's hair. He, you know, he, he was kind of an odd-looking guy. And he says, I'm Elijah, Elijah the Tishbite. And you're going to die. Your king's going to die on his bed. And has Israel no God that they should ask of him? And basically Elijah was saying, why would you go to an idol when you could go to the Lord God? You're going to die. So the, the guys go back to the king and they say, hey, um, king, we met this guy on the way. We didn't get to the, the, the idol. And he says you're going to die. And so the king says, all right, I'm sending out a captain and 50 men. And you guys are going to go pull that prophet down so that you can go up and acquire of, of, of the idol. So they go there and Elijah says, who are you guys? And they say, well, we're, we're from the king, and we want to acquire of Belzebub. And Elijah asked them the same questions about the prophet. And then, and then he says, well, just so you know that I'm a prophet, you'll be devoured by fire. And sure, sure enough, fire comes down from heaven, they all die. So the king sends another 50 men. Same process, they all die. Then the third guy that comes with his men comes in, and he's like, uh, excuse me, I just want to. Um, I'm a good guy. I just wonder if you'd be willing to come down and come talk to the king. Got a family. I'm a, please, would you please? And he comes in very d- genuine and nice and asks Elijah, and Elijah goes with him. So we know that Elijah called down fire from heaven. We know that Elijah shut up the re- heavens for, for his time of prophesying for three and a half years. We know that he did that in the Old Testament, and there was no rain and a massive drought. And then we also know that... Um, Moses, of course, turned the waters into blood. We saw that that happened. So it's possible this could be literally Elijah and Moses come back to prophesy or witness. It could be one of the hundred two of the hundred forty four thousand that God empowers in their a ministry like Elijah and and Moses. Um, you know, it's interesting that Micah four five tells us, and if you turn there real fast to Micah four five Malachi, I'm sorry, Malachi four five. God tells us in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So Malachi prophesies that Elijah will come before that great and awesome day of the Lord. And of course, we, we look at John the Baptist, and Jesus himself said, if you're willing to accept it, John the Baptist is the Elijah to come. But there's that question is, was John the Baptist the actual Elijah as far as the, the one that was prophesied in Malachi? Or was he part fulfillment, but a more future, greater fulfillment is still yet to come? It's possible. Scholars argue all that. We don't really know. But here's what we do know. Notice they're killed. The, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war and conquer them and kill them. Three beasts in Revelation, and we're, gonna, we're about to get into all these, these key people as we go through Revelation. The beast from the pit is Satan. 
The beast from the sea is the Antichrist, and the beast from the land is the false prophet. Okay, and so it's, you have an unholy trinity going on in the book of Revelation. Uh, and that's what Satan does. He counterfeits things, doesn't he? Satan always counterfeits something. Hey, we want you to be religious, but just leave out Jesus. We want you to be religious, but you really need to be born again to know him. I mean, Satan's always got a counterfeit, always trying to get you to get away from the truth. I find it I- interesting that in Islam, the number one sin in Islam is to say that Allah has a partner. That's the number one blasphemous thing you can say. Because the number one tenet of Islam is that Allah is God and he has no partner. When we say partner, what do we mean? Well, to say Jesus Christ is God is to say Allah has a partner. Or there's someone next to Allah. And that's why if you're going to talk to a Muslim, you've got to really understand the Trinity and the doctrine of the Trinity from what we're talking about. But interesting how Satan always will fabricate something to make you feel holy, make you feel spiritual, but leave out Jesus or make it impossible to worship Jesus. The Mormons say, it's by, by grace after all you can do. Jesus was a model going before us of how we should be, but not the final atonement. Make you feel spiritual, make you seem religious, but definitely keep you from the truth of Jesus Christ. So these two witnesses, we, we, we see that the beast coming out of the pit will make war on them. And it says he will conquer them and kill them. Well, is he more powerful than God? No. It's all part of God's plan. Don't worry. Because we see that their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt. Now, when you read this, you think, like, what great city is called Sodom in Egypt? But then the, the, John tells us where the Lord was crucified. Jerusalem, city of peace, now has become a representation of the world and the flesh. Egypt in the Old Testament is always a representation of the world. God is always rebuking Israel when they go down to Egypt for advice or they look to Egypt or the world for help. He's saying, you should be coming to me. And, of course, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, we, know, we know the illustration from that, just the, the idea of men being given over to their lust and their flesh. To do what ought not to be done, as the Bible says. And so here Jerusalem is referred to as Egypt and Sodom. And the beast, Satan, conquers these prophets. Notice for verse 9, for three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Now, you know, 20 years ago, we would wonder how this could actually happen. We'd say TV, maybe everybody in the world could see something on TV, but today when there's a car chase in Orange County, I see it on my phone. You know, we see things right away. I mean, you go on Facebook and you you find out all the news right away about what's going on. And, of course, uh, now with iOS, whatever I'm on, 9, I have top stories. And, by the way, did you notice that o- Obama ended his speech with, I got to go see Star Wars? Because that's important. <clears throat> it was good. All right. <laughs> so these prophets lie dead for three and a half days and people celebrate around them. Notice what they're doing. They refuse to let them be placed in a tomb 
And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. The term those who dwell on the earth always refers to the Gentiles here in Revelation or those who reject God's truth and uh, because they're, they're of the earth. That's, they, they don't have any spiritual mindset. They don't have any leaning towards God. And, and so these prophets lay dead in the middle of the street, and you're like, man, this is kind of gruesome. And people are dancing and celebrating. Here's a gift. Happy dead prophet day. Woo! You know, and, and why are they doing it? Because they were a torment to them. Now, I want you to realize, when you live righteously, you will be a torment to unbelievers. Not that you intend to. I mean, I don't ever intend to torment unbelievers. In fact, I want to show love and peace. But it's interesting how when you live a righteous life, people are convicted and condemned by your righteousness. You show Christ to them. And you should ask yourself, am I the smell of death to unbelievers? Not that you want to be. I'm not saying go spray on the fragrance of death and you're like, hey, I'm ready to go. Out on the date, you know. But do <laughs> I walked in the bathroom today <laughs> after the um, the Hispanic service was about to start, and some come into the bathroom to get ready for their service the, um, for Pastor Cedar Church. They love their cologne. I like tasted it. I was like, oh, there's a cloud of cologne in the bathroom. So, anyway, so but are are you the fragrance of death? Are you a torment to the unbeliever? And, of course, you don't intend to be this way. But you have to ask yourself, do unbelievers see something different in me? Or do they see me just affirming all of their deeds and me acting just like them? You're supposed to be a witness. Remember, that's what you are in Christ Jesus. So these, these people are, are so happy. They're making merry and exchanging gifts, much like Christmas time, right? Because two prophets are dead. I find it interesting that they don't allow these prophets to be buried. And for three and a half days, these prophets lay in the streets. Do you know in Islam, and I'm, I'm just speculating here. In Islam, it is of the utmost important that the body is buried within the first 24 hours. Very important. Now, some Muslims will extend that a little bit. But you definitely want to get buried right away because as soon as you're buried, you face towards Mecca, you're laid on your right side, you're, you're ritually prepared, you're washed, you're wrapped in clothes, and you're put in the grave immediately. And that's why, by the way, when, when these plane crashes happen and they can't find bodies, for an Islam, this is just irreconcilable. They, 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 for a Muslim, this is like total travesty, wrong, you should release the body right away so we can bury it. Because the body has to be buried within that 24-hour period. Because two angels are going to show up and visit the person. The person's going to, and they're supposed to be buried in loose ground so they can sit up when the angels show up. The angels are going to come to them. They're going to sit up and they're going to say, okay, were you a good Muslim? And if the person, and you can't lie at this point. And if the person says, yeah, I was, I was a Muslim, but I, I didn't fully go to prayers, and yeah, I kind of also looked at the God of the Gentiles, or, or, or these other gods and stuff, and can I, can I go back and be a better Muslim now and make my pilgrimage to Mecca? What will happen is these angels will rush you right to the judgment, and you'll be judged, and, and that will all end. But if you're a good Muslim, you'll get to rest in peace until the time of the judgment, and that's when you're raised up and you get to 
going to um, the heaven and hopefully virgins and all that sort of stuff. So if you're a woman, there's not much there, there for you other than a whole bunch of virgins. So, so but, but I, I find it interesting that one of the things that they're celebrating the victory is that these prophets of God Most High are laying in the street dead for over three days. I, I really wonder if a part of this victory is by those who, who um, follow Allah and are, are Muslims because they keep them from burial. Uh, no other religion in the world would want to keep somebody from burial. Um, that religion would because it will keep you from a better afterlife. <clears throat> so they rejoice over them, make merry. But look at verse 11. But after the three and a half days... A breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at the hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. So everybody's rejoicing, happy dead prophet day, here's a gift for you. Oh, look at these dumb prophets, they're all dead. And all of a sudden, they stand up. Everybody's like, what the, what's going on here? And a voice says, come up, and boom, they're taken up into heaven. Different from the rapture. The rapture is a, 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 a silent gathering, a secret gathering of the church, where this one is a public, one that all their enemies can see as these prophets ascend. And then this giant earthquake, a tenth of Jerusalem is going to fall down and 7,000 people are going to die. And uh, what is the product? They gave glory to God of heaven. Notice verse 14, the second woe has passed. We're in these woes. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. If you remember, we've, we've looked at, the, as we looked at these judgments, we've had six seals being broken open on a scroll. And on the... On that seventh seal, we had seven trumpets. And on the, on the fifth trumpet, we had the announcement of three woes. And woes are not good things, remember. And then, then we've been going through the woes, and now we're in the second woe, and it's finally finished with these prophets, this earthquake, and these 7,000 dead. Now we move to the seventh trumpet. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there was... And I'm going to do this fast, by the way, because we just don't have time tonight. Blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake and heavenly hail. And um, so we have the seventh trumpet sounding. And we see that at the sounding is the announcement of Christ's return and um, taking back the earth. Psalm chapter 2, verse 9, if you want to look that up. It's 
Christ subjecting the earth to his rule. Now, it hasn't quite happened yet. We still have seven bowls of judgment to be poured out in Revelation. And all these things will come in succession. But first we're going to get into, in the next few chapters, we're going to get into some other players and people in the book of Revelation that have been going on during this time. So we're going to almost get a, another parenthetical pause to tell us about the woman and the dragon and the beast and all those things. So we'll, we'll get into those. But from the seventh trumpet, there's praise because God has taken back the earth. Notice what it says. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Are you ready to be subject to God? I'll tell you right now, if you're born again in Christ, you're like, man, this is going to be a good day. It's going to be a good day because it's going to be an end of evil in this world. It's going to be an end of injustice. It's going to be things working the way they should work. And I can't wait for it. But maybe you're on the other side. No, I really don't want Christ to reign. And that's one of the reasons why the prophecy says that he's going to reign with a rod of iron. Because whether people like it or not, when Christ establishes his millennial kingdom, justice will be. It will happen. But I wonder, which Christ are you living for? The real Christ or the Antichrist? Are, are, are you living for the one who's going to give you what you want and tell you that everything you do is right? Or are you living the one, for the one that can give you life and life abundantly and life eternal? Are you the one living for the one that can give you peace and hope? Are you living with the one that only will take you into judgment? Because as we look at this book of Revelation, we're talking about a lot of judgments. But we're also talking about God saying, hey, I'm empowering people to share the gospel We've got these two witnesses doing these marvelous acts. Why? <clears throat> Not just so that, that people can see cool magic tricks. It's happening because God wants people to know that he is God. And he's provided salvation for all. I'll tell you, time is short. And I don't know that Christ is going to come back in my lifetime. I hope he does. But I know eventually I will see him. I will stand before him. I don't know what day he will call me home. I don't know at what time or hour. My, uh, our friend Sam Parson had a major heart attack uh, recently, and a lot of you guys saw it in a prayer request. And he walked in the office the other day, and people have been asking, how's Sam, how's Sam? And, and he came in, he had triple bypass surgery that cracked open his whole chest, and he's recovering, he's doing better. But I think about that, and I was like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm getting close to 40 here. This could, D-Day is happening, <laughs> you know, like I look in the mirror, okay, time to get in shape. <laughs> you know, you read about these, but the fact is I just don't know. I don't know when I'm going to be called home, and I don't know if it's going to be by rapture, tribulation, or just death. And I'm not willing to gamble. I'm just not willing to throw a ball down on a roulette table and say, come on, come on, come on, how much longer can I go? No, I want to know with confidence that I am a subject of the Lord God. I want to know that I'm in his kingdom. And I want to be able to sing hallelujah when he reigns. You can too. Yeah, you've got to repent of some things, probably. But I guarantee living for Christ is a much more full, gratifying, wonderful life than you'll ever have 
living for yourself or the Antichrist or Satan. He's going to reign. Will you let him reign in your heart tonight? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for this time and we thank you for your word. And Lord, uh, these two prophets are already testifying. They have not even come yet, Lord, but they're already speaking of your goodness and your truths. So, Lord, we just ask you to reign in us first. Establish your kingdom in my heart, Lord. Help me to follow you. And if you're in this room tonight and you've been living for yourself and doing what you want to do, but you know, you know you're playing at the roulette table. Your time is coming and you're going to go to judgment. I want to encourage you right now, you ask God for forgiveness. Say, Lord Jesus, I need what you did for me on that cross. I'm ready to follow you. I repent of my sin. And I'll do what you tell me to do. do. Help, me, help me to learn to be your child. You pray that prayer. Lord, we thank you so much. We pray that you give us fullness of life. And God, help us to be wise with our time as the day draws near. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.